0: Oh, I've been thinking. what do you want to do there? for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night.
2: They call me Mr. Tibbs.
0: Welcome to 99 Years, 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. I'm Terry Hooks, and with me as always is my co-host, Blaine Daller. How are you doing today, Blaine? Uh, Doing well, thank you. Good. We're also thrilled to be joined today by author and fellow podcaster, Will Pfeiffer. Will, how are you this morning? I'm good. I'm good, guys. Good. Glad you could join us. This time we're looking at the 33rd Annual Academy Awards, covering films released in 1960, and the Best Picture winner of that year, The Apartment, directed by Billy Wilder. The Apartment premiered on June 15th, 1960 and feature Jack Lemmon as C.C. Baxter, Shirley MacLaine as Miss Kubelik, and Fred McMurray as Jeff D. Sheldrake. The film's screenplay was written by Billy Wilder and I.A.L. Diamond. Our synopsis this month, as most months, comes from our good friends at Wikipedia. C.C. Bud Baxter is a lonely office drudge at an insurance corporation in New York City. In order to climb the corporate ladder, he allows four corporate company managers to take turns regularly borrowing his Upper West Side apartment for their extramarital liaisons. Bud meticulously juggles the booking schedule, but the steady stream of women in and out convinces his neighbors that he's a playboy bringing someone new home every night. Bud solicits glowing performance reviews from the four managers, who submit them to personnel director Jeff Sheldrake, who promises to promote Bud. But only if he also allows Sheldrake the use of the apartment for his affairs, starting with that very night, as compensation, he gives Baxter two theater tickets for that evening. Bud asks his secret crush, Fran Kubelik, an elevator operator in the building, to join him. She agrees, but after meeting with Sheldrake, who dissuades her from breaking up with him by promising to divorce his wife, she instead goes. With Mr. Sheldrake to Bud's apartment as Bud Waite stood up outside the theater. Later, at the company's Christmas party, Sheldrake's secretary, Miss Olson, tells Fran that her boss has had affairs with other female employees, including herself. Later, at Bud's apartment, Fran confronts Sheldrake. He professes genuine love for her, but then takes off uh, back to his family as usual. Bud, Realizing that Fran is the woman Sheldrake has been taken to his apartment, lets himself be picked up by a married lady at a local bar. However, when they arrive at his apartment, he discovers Fran passed out on his bed from an apparent suicidal overdose of his sleeping pills. He sends away the woman from the bar and enlists Dr. Dreyfus, a doctor living in the next-door apartment, to revive Fran. Bud purposefully makes Dreyfus believe that he was the cause of the incident. Dreyfus scolds Bud for philandering and advises him to... Grow up and be a mensch. While Fran spends two days recuperating in the apartment, Bud cares for her and a bond develops between them, especially after he confesses to his own suicide attempt over unrequited feelings for a woman who now sends him a fruitcake every Christmas. During a game of gin rummy, Fran says she has always suffered bad luck in her love life. As Bud prepares a romantic dinner, one of the managers arrives for a tryst. Bud forces him and his companion to leave. But the manager recognizes Fran and informs the other managers. Later, when they're confronted by Fran's brother-in-law, Carl Matushka, who's looking for her, the jealous managers direct Carl to Bud's apartment. There, Bud deflects the brother-in-law's anger over Fran's wayward behavior by once again assuming all responsibility. Carl punches him, but when Fran kisses Bud for protecting her, he just smiles and says it didn't hurt a bit. When Sheldrake learns that Miss Olsen tipped off Fran about his affairs, he fires her, though she retaliates by spilling all to Sheldrake's wife, who promptly throws her husband out. Sheldrake believes that the situation just makes it easier to pursue his affair with Fran. Having promoted Bud to an even higher position, which also gives him a key to the executive washroom, Sheldrake expects Bud to loan out his apartment yet again. But Bud instead gives the washroom key back, proclaiming that he's decided to become a mensch and quits the firm. That night, at a New Year's Eve party, Sheldrake indignantly tells Fran about Bud quitting. Realizing she's in love with Bud, Fran abandons Sheldrake and runs to the apartment. At the door, she hears an apparent gunshot. Fearing that Bud has attempted suicide again, she frantically pounds on the door. Bud opens up, holding a bottle of champagne whose cork he had just popped, celebrating his plan to start anew. As the two settle down to resume their gin rummy game, Fran tells Bud that she's now free too. When she, he asks about Sheldrake, she replies, We'll send him a fruitcake every Christmas. He declares his love for her, and she replies, Shut up and deal. So, normally we start with what was everyone's first viewing experience of the apartment? Was this behind the scenes? I know very well um, that this isn't Will's first time seeing the apartment, <laughs> but was this your first time seeing the apartment, Blaine? Uh, no, this is actually the third. So, um,
2: the first time. I was very disappointed in it because the DVD I picked up sold it improperly. Mm -hmm. It was my second Billy Wilder film and all the marketing on that DVD package said the team behind some like it hot got back together again. This is their next comedy. And this is a comedy, but it's there, there are points where you laugh, but it's more a comedy in the traditional theater sense where the leads have a happy ending than a comedy in the outright farce of some like it hot. And that, DVD package prepared me for a farce like Some Like It Hot. So I didn't give it a fair shake because it's not what I expected it to be, even though the people who made that movie did not break any promises. I i think Billy Wilder and Jack Lemon, if we were to go back to the 1960 marketing, I doubt they were playing up the Some Like It Hot thing as much as that was. And then watched it a second time when it was discussed on the Out of Theaters podcast. And then this is the third time.
0: Oh, what about you, Will? When did you discover the apartment?
1: um it was let's see it must have been the early 90s a uh, a friend of mine and this is actually before dvd had a videotape of it and just said we should watch you know we're looking for something to watch and showed me this movie and i loved it i i it was so much more complex than i expected it to be and and it uh it just had you know i really got into it and then i i didn't watch it again for several years and then when it was released on dvd i used to review dvds for a newspaper so whoever it was, MGM, or somebody sent me a a review copy, watched it again, fell in love with it, and since then, I've, like, bought the Blu-ray, and then I bought the big Arrow, like, special edition Blu-ray with a book. I got that a couple years ago, and watch it when it's on Turner Classics, (laughs) and then just yesterday, I rewatched it, because it's it's, uh, streaming on the Criterion channel, so I I mean, I know the movie back and forth, but any excuse to watch it again, and normally, I like to watch it sometime around, like, Christmas, because... It's sort of a holiday movie. It starts on November 1st and it ends on right after midnight on New Year's Eve. So it's, you know, fits really well into that time schedule. But uh, yeah, I, I've seen it several times and I, I find something new in it every time. And I sort of appreciate it more like sort of what it manages to do and how effortlessly it seems to do it.
0: Yeah, I I think similarly, I probably first saw it around the late 80s early 90s I think the first time I saw it was either on AMC or TCM I probably checked it out because of Jack Lemmon but you know I I stayed for Fred McMurray and Mm -hmm. uh and Shirley McLean I I but I fell in love with this movie when I as some of our listeners probably know I in college, I worked for uh, Suncoast Motion Picture Company, and this had to be, like, in the first ten tapes that I bought with my store discount. Nice. So what was everyone's overall impression of the film?
1: Um, well, I'll go first just real quick. I I will say, like, put a gun to my head and my Letterbox profile will or, uh, prove this out. This is my all-time favorite movie, so obviously I loved it, and I loved it again, and – I would just this time I was kind of watching, like sort of the screenplay and how it sets everything up so perfectly, and then it it manages to to use different elements like there's a cracked mirror, there's a champagne bottle, there's a key, and each of them sort of changes what they represent throughout the movie, and it's just I I stand in awe of someone who can write a screenplay that works this well, works this hard, and but it but the movie is never. Boring. It's never like confusing. It's just a, a. It's like a Swiss watch. It just ticks right along. And unlike some movies that are perfectly written, it has a real like. There's real moments of emotion. Like I think it really grabs you, pulls you, and you feel for Bud. You feel for Fran. And um, yeah, I I loved it. I, I you know you guys had me on here because I loved it obviously. <laughs> so 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 I loved it.
2: Yeah, this was not a random invitation. No, no, no. <laughs> I said um. Like I said, the first time I watched it, I wasn't impressed because I felt like I was promised a different movie than they made, and rewatching it, my respect for it has grown tremendously, like Will said this This is a well oiled machine, so you can't expect to laugh at times, but yeah, this is not some like it hot, which I also highly recommend, but this is one that it earns everything it does there is nothing where it's just leaning on cliche or habit or you know we're just going to assume that you think these two are in love because we tell you there's a lot of show don't tell even though there's there's expository dialogue but it is handled so well it doesn't feel like expository dialogue it's just things you need to know naturally coming up in conversation before you need to know them which is a very hard line to walk so yeah it this is one that is If if it has any weakness, it's because the business being depicted is the kind of business that would have been utterly destroyed by the Me Too movement. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But to be fair to the film, as you're watching it, the only characters that have a happy ending are the characters who realize that is not the lifestyle we should be living. And then they choose monogamy. And those who did not make that choice are the ones who end up with dumpster fires for their lives. The movie, even though it shows a lot of infidelity, it ultimately comes out against infidelity.
0: Oh, yeah, I would agree. I completely get why you feel like it would be a bait and switch off of the marketing. But I think part of what I like so much about it is how much it can defy expectations, depending on what your background is coming into it. And we can talk more about e- each of the main leads as we go through, but Jack Lemon gives a nice moderate performance. He's not as manic as he was as, let's say, Josephine in Some Like It Hot or as loud as he was in Mr. Roberts. So except for when he's playing sick, he leaves a lot behind a lot of the Ticks that he typically uses in his toolkit. If you're only familiar with an older Shirley MacLaine, and uh, terms from endearment are still Magnolia's, Shirley MacLaine, she really has a nice, sweet, I'll say somewhat naive role here. And then what was revelatory for me was when I saw it, this film, it was early in me becoming a Cinephile. So I had not yet seen the rough and tumble Fred McMurray from the 30s or the double, the Double Indemnity Fred McMurray, right? I knew my three dads and Professor Brainerd and you know, the dad from uh the Shaggy Dog and other Disney films. So to pl- see him play just a complete and total scumbag was just eye opening. Yeah, this
2: is not the role that C.C. C. Beck would have looked at and said, he's going to be my model for Captain Marvel. <laughs> I, I would certainly agree with that. And I just want to be absolutely clear before we go much further. While I do feel that there was bait and switch for me on that first DVD, I blame the people who put together the packaging on that DVD and not anyone involved in the actual construction of the film.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, Billy Wilder over his career, I mean, he did dramas, he did comedies, he did dark comedies, he did adventure movies. You know, he did a lot of different kinds.
2: Yeah, he is one of those directors who proves that he is capable of making films independent of genre.
1: Oh, definitely.
2: I mean, had the Academy kept with what they did in their first year, where they had Best Picture for Artistic Merit and Best Picture for Mechanics, Billy Wilder could have walked home with the Oscar for Best Picture for the Mechanics of Filmmaking every year he made a movie. Mm -hmm. he, He was that capable.
0: Overall, in his career, I counted, he had been nominated for Best Screenplay or an equivalent thereof 11 times in his career and Best Director eight times. I don't think that's like the most nominations anyone has ever had, but he's got to be in the top ten if you combine the two categories together.
2: Probably. I think John Ford has the record for most director nominations. I could be mistaken
0: will's absolutely right, they run the gamut of some like it hot and Sabrina on one end and you know Stalag seventeen and Sunset Boulevard on the other end, and the apartment's kind of in the middle in terms of tone
1: right it's like like you said it's a comedy in the classical sense in that there's a happy ending for our heroes, but it's not it's not a laugh out loud mm-hmm. ha 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 movie by any means, but it is a movie where you kind of like for me, I appreciate the wit and the dialogue. It's it's very smart and it it's funny to listen to, it's not laugh inducing. And you know, just the you know, the way everyone says like, oh well, that's the way it crumbles, cookie wise, and you can see the executives are saying it and then Baxter picks it up, you know, he drops it in his conversation when he's he's angling it to be an executive. So there's a lot of funny touches here and there.
2: Yeah, there's there's a lot of subtle humor, but it produces a lot more smiles than than laughs. Oh, definitely.
1: And I think this well, I don't we can get to it, but I uh, well we want to, but I think this movie has one of the coldest, most bleak scenes I've seen in a movie in decades. But I'll like we can cover that whenever you want to get to that. <laughs> it's such a simple scene.
2: Yeah, go ahead, because this is just okay. sort of the open movie talk, and then after that we run through all the Academy Award nominations okay. and all nominee, or all categories.
1: It's it's the scene when um and when sheldrake Fred Mcmurray is uh it's Christmas Eve too, which is you know this is yet yeah, like like it's a wonderful life and uh meet John doe, it's a movie that revolves around a suicide attempt on a Christmas eve <laughs> but um so he and he and Fran are at the apartment and uh she gives him a record album from the restaurant they go to the Chinese restaurant where they have their their hidden dinners their secret little meetings and you know it's it's such a romantic gift because it like You know, this is a symbol of our relationship. I mean, she never says any of this, but you you realize, like, this is what the relationship means to her, and she treasures those moments and this and that. And he looks at it, and the first thing he says is, well, it's better if we leave this here, you know, so his wife won't see it. Then he clearly (laughs) didn't buy her anything, so he says, I didn't have time to get you a gift. And he hands her a $100 bill, and there is a great shot of his hand extending into the frame with the $100 bill and Shirley McLean just looking up at him, realizing – completely what he thinks of her and it's just so bleak and then she says you know she starts taking off her not her dress but her coat and says well I thought as long as it was paid for and he's like oh Fran don't make yourself sound cheap and she's like $100 that's not cheap and it wasn't back in 1960 but I just think that scene it's it's the opposite of funny it's so sad and tragic and it's you know it's what leads to the suicide attempt
2: yeah and honestly when you said one of the saddest scenes. That's the one I was expecting you to talk about when Sheldrake gets the call from CC oh, yeah. from Bud saying, "Yeah, this is what's going on. She tried to kill herself, and Sheldrake's basically, well, I can't be there because I got to keep up appearances in this marriage, so you take care of it." Mm-hmm. And he's at a like a picture
1: per literally picture perfect because it's the picture on his Christmas card, but like a picture perfect Christmas morning with his sons and his wife and a Christmas tree and toys under the tree. You know, it couldn't be more all American family. And then, you know, his, his underling calls to tell him that his mistress tried to kill herself the night before on Christmas Eve. It's so, but the movie is a comedy. It's, it's amazing. You can have such dark moments and still, you know, have moments of levity in it.
2: Mm -hmm. And it does come out and there's moments where there's times I laughed, not because it was funny, because I was cheering. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, when, when Bud turns in the key, and it's not right, right. clear until he's leaving, and Sheldrake comes back. He's like, Oh, you gave me the wrong key. And he's going, No, I did not. You can have your executive washroom key. I am keeping the key to my apartment.
1: And then there's the moment later when Fran and, and Sheldrake are at New Year's Eve celebrating, and Sheldrake's all happy because they're going to go to Atlantic City and, you know, no doubt have a big weekend of sex or something. And, uh, and, um, he starts talking about how like we can't go to the apartment because bud won't let me he says i can't bring any anyone especially miss Kubelik. and you can see it's all like all reaction shots from sharon lacune and you can just see on her face that she's realizing that bud loves her and she's also realizing that she loves him you know it's like you can see it all coming out and she like gets tears in her eyes and then she starts you know then she leaves and, and you have that moment when You, you know, they it's fast cut to her running to Bud's apartment, and the music swells. It's just such a great scene. One thing about the very end, though, when she they do the shut up and deal. You know what always fried me is on every DVD and video box, the image they have is literally the last shot of the movie, (laughs) them sitting there happily on a couch. So if you've never seen it before, you're like, well, I know they get to a couch at some point in the movie.
2: Yeah, that's I've got the the MGM Blu-ray in front of me. And the only picture on the back is Shirley MacLaine and Jack Lemmon on the couch colorized, which is yes. A bit the of a colorized. Crime. And yeah. she's holding the, one of the black Queens. I can't tell if it's clubs or spades. So
0: just to cap it off, I, because I was doing a synopsis, I've got the Wikipedia page in front of me and that's the still shot that they have of next course. to the cast list. <laughs> oh, and by the way, I just,
1: I was – because I'm such an apartment nerd, I have the screenplay, and it's interesting because at the very end when she says we'll send him a fruitcake every Christmas, in the screenplay she says I'm going to send him a fruitcake every Christmas, which has a whole different meaning than we're going to send him a fruitcake Mm -hmm. every Christmas. So I'm glad they changed it for the movie.
2: Yeah, that is one of the better changes because that – especially since when he says I love you, she says shut up and deal. That's the element that says, no, she really is on board with this in the long term.
1: Yes. And she, of course, I mean, as we all know, she's really saying, I love you, too. You know, it's like.
2: But yeah. Yeah. It's not quite as blatant to say, as you wish, but. <laughs>
1: exactly. Well, yeah. Yeah. What you And after all they went through in this movie, you don't want them to break up eventually. You want to feel like they're together forever and away from the rat race.
0: Well, you had touched on this a little bit earlier, Will, but. I was stumbling through handling the synopsis because they keep saying Bud and Fran. And those were the characters' names. But one of the things that struck me on this viewing was how often they're just Baxter and Kubelik.
1: Right, right.
0: And for the managers, it's done dismissively.
1: Buddy boy, buddy boy.
0: (laughs) Right. But the, the two do it with each other. Respectfully, like I
1: don't think they ever call each other Bud or Fran, they don't, uh-uh. Miss Kubelik and um, Mr. Baxter,
0: and that's how I had them in my nose mm-hmm. <laughs> because, because, um, and they're so sweet about it, the two of them are so sweet together about it,
1: definitely. I mean, you can see where I mean, it is interesting because it, it, I, and I didn't come up with this theory, but or this observation, but there's a point in the movie, sort of about two thirds of the way through sort of before the last big act, when all three of them essentially get what they want. Like Fran is with Sheldrake. Sheldrake has left his wife and Bud is promoted and is now an executive. And at the beginning of the movie, this is sort of all what they wanted. And of course, none of them have that at the end. But, you know, it's like it's a movie that that a lesser movie almost would have ended earlier or could have said, like, Mm -hmm. well, everyone's happy. You know, but, of course, they're not really happy. That's the thing. Because Jack has to become, or Bud has to become a mensch before the movie can be over.
2: Yeah, and they pull it off because you believe that their goals have changed. Oh, yeah. Completely. I'm just thinking of Josh Trank's Fantastic Four, where they accomplished their goals like 30 minutes in and could have just turned around and gone home and there would have been no exactly. movie.
1: <laughs> That's what they, Yeah,
2: they accomplished the plot
1: goals, but like not the emotional goals. Which is why the screenplay works so well, because it has such an emotional undercurrent.
2: Right, and here you believe it because they're all just seeking what they think will bring them happiness. And it's at that point where they realize, well, they've misidentified what that's going to be. Exactly. And Trey, you were saying earlier, I think, how you, you know,
1: Fred McBurry, you knew him from The Shaggy Dog and My Three Mm -hmm. Sons, which, same with me when I first saw this. I I don't think I'd seen Double Indemnity or Cain mutiny or, like, any of the movies where he sort of plays a bastard. Right. And what's interesting in this movie is he doesn't play it any differently than in the Disney movies he's cheerful, he never yells, he barely ever even gets upset, you know he's always very avuncular and very well, you know, bud, we have to do this, and then, oh Fran, you know you know I don't feel that way it's like and that makes it sort of more like he's because he's such an awful person, but he's you know it's it's not like they make him a monster he's the average guy who happens to be an awful person
0: well, and well, that's even. Same with the I'm sorry I i was just going to say real quick even in the scene you mentioned right you know uh you know Fran don't treat yourself cheaply I mean that that could have been him reproaching Tommy Kirk
1: Exactly yeah exactly he sounds like any and he because he's older than you know Bud and Fran he does sign a not father figure but more like the you know the oh I know better than you guys and this and that and uh and the other boss I mean uh what's his, um Mr. Dobich and Mr. Uh, Kirkby and those guys. I mean, they're all, you know, yucking it up. You know, Ray Walston. He's so good in this. He, you know, and he, he went there. He was in everything from My Favorite Martian to Fast Times for Ridgemont High. I mean, he's like, he's great. He's so funny. They're all such bastards, though.
2: <laughs> yeah, and that's that's it for for me with Ray Walston. This I knew him from this and My Favorite Martian only. The first time I saw this, oh so yeah, I had yeah. already seen Double Indemnity, so I had seen that side of Fred McMurray.
1: And he's, I mean, in Double Indemnity, I love Double Indemnity too. By the way, another Billy Wilder movie. Yeah. And, uh, but Frederick Murray is sort of, he's like, in this one, he's just a, you know, he's just a bad dude. But in, in Double Indemnity, he's a bad guy, but he's also in way over his head and never quite realizes it until the end.
0: <laughs> like, Well, and Sheldrake doesn't have the self-awareness that his character has in Double Indemnity.
1: Right, right. Yeah, he doesn't have the depth either, I would say, but, uh.
2: Yeah, and it probably doesn't help that because all the executives are similar, it's easy for them to justify it as just, well, that's what happens. Right? Right. They don't need to question their choices when everybody around them is making the same choices. Of course.
1: Four bad apples, five bad apples, well, you
2: know. <laughs> Although they have – it's the, the same thing when they're – a little bit political, same thing when they're talking about police. Well, it's just a few bad apples. It's like they've right. forgotten that the entire cliche is, you know, one bad apple spoils one. the barrel.
1: Yeah, they forgot the the chunk at the end of the, the cliché, exactly.
2: All right. So are there any more immediate comments, or should we get to what else was nominated in which categories? Sure. Sure. All right, so these awards were held April 17th, 1961, hosted once again by Bob Hope. Best Picture obviously went to The Apartment. It beat out The Alamo, Elmer Gantry, Sons and Lovers, and The Sundowners. Best Director also went to Billy Wilder for The Apartment. He beat out Jules Dassin for Never on Sunday, Alfred Hitchcock for Psycho, Jack Carter for Sons and Lovers, and Fred Zinneman for The Sundowners. Best Actor went to Burt Lancaster for Elmer Gantry, beating out Trevor Howard for Sons and Lovers, Jack Lemmon for The Apartment, Laurence Olivier for The Entertainer, and Spencer Tracy for Inherit the Wind. Best Actress went to Elizabeth Taylor for Butterfield 8, beating out Greer Garson in Sunrise at Campobello, Deborah Kerr for The Sundowners, Shirley MacLaine for The Apartment, and Melinda McCurry for Never on Sunday. Best Supporting Actor went to Peter Ustinov for his role in Spartacus, beating out Peter Falk in Murder, Inc. which is off the track down. Huge Columbo fan here. Mm-hmm. Jack Christian for The Apartment as Dr. Dreyfus Salmanio for Exodus and uh, Chill Wills for The Alamo. Best Supporting Actress went to Shirley Jones for Elmer Gantry, beating out Glynnis Johns and the Sundowners, Shirley Knight in The Dark at the Top of the Stairs, Janet Leigh for Psycho, and Mary Urie for Sons and Lovers. So that's the only acting category that The Apartment did not get nominated in. Best Story and Screenplay went to The Apartment, beating out The Angry Silence, The Facts of Life, Hiroshima, My Love, and Never on Sunday. Best Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium went to Elmer Gantry beating out Inherit the Wind, Sons and Lovers, The Sundowners, and Tunes of Glory. Best foreign language film went to The Virgin Spring, beating out Capo, Macario, The Ninth Circle, and La Verite. Best documentary went to The Horse with the Flying Tail, beating out Rebel in Paradise. Best documentary short subject, sorry, the previous was documentary feature. Uh, Short subject went to Giuseppina, if I pronounced that correctly, beating out Beyond Silence, A City Called Copenhagen, George Gras Interregnum, and Universe. Best live action short subject went to Day of the Painter, beating out The Creation of Woman, Islands of the Sea, A Sport is Born. Best short subject cartoons went to Monroe, beating out Goliath II*, High Note, Mouse and Garden, and A Place in the Sun. Best music score of a dramatic or comedy picture went to Exodus by Ernest Gold, beating out The Alamo, Elmer Gantry, The Magnificent Seven, and Spartacus. I got a hear the Exodus soundtrack if that beat out Magnificent Seven. (laughs) (laughs) Best scoring of a musical went to Song Without End, beating out Bells Are Ringing, Can Can, Let's Make Love, and Pepe. The best song was the title track from Never on Sunday, beating out The Second Time Around from High Time, Far Away, Part of Town from Pepe, The Green Leaves of Summer from the Alamo, and the title track from The Facts of Life. Best sound went to The Alamo, beating out The Apartment, Cimarron, Pepe and Sunrise at Campobello, and yes, the Cimarron is a remake of the film that Trey and I discussed many podcasts ago. Best Art Direction Black and White went to The Apartment, beating out Facts of Life, Psycho, Sons and Lovers, and Visit to a Small Planet. Best Art Direction Color went to Spartacus, beating out Cimarron, It Started at Naples, Pepe, and Sunrise at Campobello. Best Cinematography Black and White went to Sons and Lovers, beating out The Apartment facts of life inherit the wind and psycho best cinematography color went to spartacus beating out the alamo butterfield eight exodus and pepe black and white costume design went to the facts of life beating out never on sunday the rise and fall of legs diamond seven thieves and the virgin spring which is one of those rare foreign films that makes it out of the foreign film category best costume design color went to spartacus beating out Can Can, Midnight Less, Pepe, and Sunrise at Campobello. Best Film Editing went to The Apartment, beating out The Alamo, Inherit the Wind, Pepe, and Spartacus. That was specifically Daniel Mandel who won that one. And then finally, for Best Special Effects, The Time Machine beat out The Last Voyage. So those are the competitive awards. The honorary awards went to Gary Cooper and Stan Laurel. And the juvenile award went to Harry Mills, or Hayley Mills, and the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award went to Saul Lesser. All right. So as usual, we've gone through the Oscars. We'll you know, give our thoughts on those before we look at the Golden Globes. So first off, I would say that, yeah, I, this is a competitive year. Yeah. I mean, we will get to it. All five of my five all-time favorite directors released a movie in this year. Some not their best work, but they were all in the mix. And there are some very good performances. So, how do we feel about their best motion picture choice here?
1: I mean, obviously, you know, I'll agree with it. But you know, the one, the one that wasn't nominated for best picture that is like, it's right close on my all-time list with. Apartment is Psycho, you know. Hitchcock got the nomination, but I mean, Psycho—it's such an amazing movie, and it's like some—you know—every so often I'll be like, do I like The Apartment better or Psycho? It always lands on The Apartment, but Psycho—it's no slouch. So, but it's the kind of movie that was not going to get nominated for Best Picture back then.
0: Yeah. This year's kind of an odd year, um, you know. But just for Will's benefit, when I prepare for the podcast, I will watch. The film that we're going to be talking about. And then I use Letterboxd and the films that would be eligible. I try to watch one a week. Wow. What were like the popular, you know, what have the popular votes? But like for 1960, and these aren't, you know, slouch films, it was, you know, The Apartment, Psycho, Spartacus, Magnificent Seven, and the original. Um, Village of the Damned. So normally when I do that, I get at least the winner and one or two of the competitors. But this time that didn't happen, and I'm aware of the Alamo and Elmer Gantry, but I haven't gotten around to seeing those yet. So just with what was nominated, of course, The Apartment. It, it's a great film. I love it, and it's the only one out of the ones that I, I've seen. You know, I I don't know. That you want to talk about, you know, uh, other things from that year yet, um, Blaine. But just from what was nominated, I have no issues with the apartment winning.
2: Yeah, I would I would agree that of those on that nominee list, the apartment is the hands down winner. But Psycho is a glaring omission.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I would say of the English language films released this year, Psycho is really the only contender for Best Picture. Hitchcock yeah. and Kubrick are our two favorite directors, but Spartacus is not the best representation of Kubrick because of no. the, the dynamics between Kubrick and Douglas and the fact that the studio usually sided with Douglas because he had the bank ability. Right. He was it, it, Douglas. It, I mean, yeah. He was, he was huge.
0: Yeah. It wasn't really Kubrick's film and the way you'd say like 2001 or Dr. Love was. Yeah. Or, I mean, I, There's, I haven't, I've enjoyed every Kubrick film from
2: The Killing on, right? Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss are more. Yeah,
1: they're a little, they're interesting, but
2: yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you you can see those moments where the director is learning to become the director he's going to be. But you can also see the moments where, well, he hasn't learned a lesson yet.
1: And he was a kid when he made those, essentially. So, you know, it's hard to.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, he tried to have Fear and Desire destroyed. Um, he he said it was like the crayon scratchings of a child on his mother's fridge <laughs> So, they, but when they found someone found a copy and they started distributing it without his consent because they didn't need it because of the copyrights so the kubrick estate said okay you know what if it's out there let's at least own it so yeah but yeah i think from the killing on he didn't really have a failed film and yeah spartacus is one of the weaker ones there but you know, still a good movie. I would have been happy if Spartacus had been nominated, but it did not deserve the win, mm-hmm. not compared to the others. Getting to the the other films, Ingmar Bergman is also in my top five. I am happy The Virgin Spring took Best Foreign Language Film, and as we know, it took until far more recently before Best Foreign Language would also take Best Picture.
1: Right. And The Virgin Spring, you know, was a semi-remade, point of 15 years later, 12 years later, as uh, Last House on the Left. <laughs> mm. It's the same plot. <laughs> it's not the same artistic level, but it's the same story.
2: Yeah, well, in the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, that's how Hollywood brought the foreign films over. Just look yep. at Magnificent Seven from 1960. So, right? yes. People aren't going to watch a three-hour Japanese samurai film, so let's just make it a western. We'll put cowboys
1: in it, and they'll watch it. And it's a good movie, but, you know, yeah. it's not Seven Samurai.
2: Yeah, so we had those. We had Bad Sleep Well, also by Kurosawa, who's on my top five. And then Fritz Lang is the only one that rounds it out, but his uh, Dr. Mabuse film from this year is definitely one of the lesser Mabuse films yeah, oh yeah. that he made. This is twilight of his career.
0: You know, now that you say that, Will, why isn't... Oh God, I just blinked on his name. Why isn't Eli Wallach on here for Best Supporting Actor? Gosh. Yeah, I, I mean... I don't know. I mean... Like, not trying to take anything away from Peter U- uh, Ustinov, but his performance in Magnificent Seven was as good as Ustinov's performance in Spartacus, so that's that's an omission, I think. Oh, no.
1: um, Well, I mean, and you can always, you know, with the Oscars, there's, you know, there's always politics, there's always this person they felt deserved it, somebody's British, so maybe they give it, you know, they want a British guy to win it, or, you know, I mean, it's all, it's, you know, it. I, the Oscars, I mean, Sometimes it seems it's only accidentally that they reward the best work that year. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: like I, I would have been happy in a world in which maybe Apartment won best wit picture, but Hitchcock won best director, or vice versa. Like I would have been satisfied if in this year. Both Psycho and The Apartment were nominated in both picture and director, and one got one and the other got the other. I would have been content with that.
1: I could have lived with that. I mean, I love Billy Wire as a director, and I think The Apartment is beautifully directed, but, yeah, I could live with that.
2: Yeah, I, I could. And it's, well, we've talked many times about how Hitchcock seems to be overlooked. He'll get the nominations, but, I mean, his only Best Picture win was really a David O'Salesnake movie. Exactly. And he never won Best Director. He didn't. Mm -hmm. And I think this is actually the the third and final time he was even nominated for it. So I, I wonder if the Academy was overlooking him or if it was just because it's all the people in the industry. And Hitchcock was such an unpleasant human being that they just couldn't bring themselves to vote for him.
1: Also, you know... I mean, we love Psycho now, but when Psycho came out, I mean, it was a huge hit, but a lot of people thought it was like it was unpleasant and it was it was nasty and it was a, a mean, brutal, you know, movie. I mean, it wasn't seen as this sort of classic black white movie. It was seen like, why is the nice man who made North by Northwest making a bloody movie where our big star gets slashed to death in a shower by a man in a dress? You know, what I mean, it was seen as an unsavory kind of movie. So I'm not surprised. It deserved a nomination, but I'm not surprised it wasn't nominated.
0: And you're right, Blaine. He received, doing the quick math, five nominations, and Psycho was his last. He'll he'll win the um, Thalberg Memorial Award in 68, but this is his last time nominated for Best Director.
2: Okay, yeah. I I knew that he was getting the Thalberg Award, but yeah, he never won a competitive award. It's, I think he was previously up for like Rebecca, Rear Window. Um, I want to see North by Northwest and The Birds. I could be wrong about those other two.
0: I think the instead of The Birds, it was um, Lifeboat. Really? Oh, Lifeboat, right, yes.
1: Oh, really? Interesting.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. So I'm sorry, I've got it up. It was Rebecca, Lifeboat, Spellbound, Rear Window, and Psycho. North by Northwest, he didn't get a Best Director nomination for.
1: Really?
0: Yeah. Interesting.
2: Anyway, so those are the main ones. Um, for the acting awards, I'm okay with – those guys being nominated and of the the performances i've seen yeah peter ustinov i have no issues with him taking that home up against anybody else and yeah i have i haven't quite made time to see on mcgantry butterfield eight yet so i'm not going to say that they made the wrong calls there but yeah the, the people from the from the apartment definitely deserve the nominations yeah, Jack Crucian is really
1: good. He brings a real, like, he's the one who sort of guides Baxter along his humanity, you know. And
2: Yeah, and it, he does give some of the good laughs when he's, you know, because when everyone thinks that it's Baxter bringing a different woman home every right. single night, sometimes more than one a night, the first time we see this doctor, he's like, uh, would you mind leaving your body to science when you're right. done with it? Cause... <laughs> he says,
1: Mildred, he's at it again!
2: <laughs> you know, one one
1: moment in the movie that, It always surprised me a little bit because it's a 1960 movie. But when uh, when Fran's brother-in-law comes to get her and then the doctor comes over and he says doctor and then Jack says, like, not that kind of doctor, it's like a clear reference to an abortion. Right. I mean, it seems pretty surprising, but that's that's the only thing they could be talking about
2: Yeah, it, it has to be that in context. And again, that's probably just as close as the MPAA and the other certification board would allow them to get yeah, in 1960. He skated right up against that line, I think. But he he pulled it off, and I think it, part of it could have been at this point in Billy Waller's career, he had a little more leverage to say uh, to say to the studios, no, the ratings board are wrong. This will be fine. Yeah, he had some clout. I mean, he had made, yeah,
1: he had made several big hits and had Oscars. and Yeah, he had some power, and he used it wisely. <laughs>
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was, to contemporary audiences, if you're not familiar with Billy Wilder's career, I think the closest modern example would be Spielberg. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A huge variety of genres, almost all of which are financially successful, So, which is the other thing you need to be able to tell the studios what to do instead of vice versa.
1: And at this point, he was 20 plus years into his career. I mean, he had, you know,
2: as a director, so he was,
1: you know, he was a Hollywood mainstay.
0: Well, and as we mentioned at the top of the show, he was a double threat. I mean, he frequently had a writing partner, but he has more screenplay nominations and wins than he has director nominations and wins. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, Spielberg, for all his talent, isn't a writer, but yeah, Billy Wilder. And he was a writer before he was a director, too.
0: Yeah.
2: And I think part of what helps Billy Wilder with his direction is probably how strong his scripts are. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't read the screenplay, which I know Will has right there at hand, but it wouldn't surprise me if... holding it, <laughs> but it's it's tight. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if a mediocre director could make a great film based on a Billy Wilder screenplay if you just decide not to screw it up and just do what the page says. Exactly. So if we are done with the Academy Awards, we can move on to the Golden Globes for the year. Skimming just the winners, the best drama went to Spartacus. Best Comedy went to The Apartment, and Best Musical is Song Without End. Best Actor in a Drama went to Burt Lancaster for Elmer Gantry. Best Actress in a Drama went to Greer Garson for Sunrise at Campobello. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor was nominated, so those lists are similar. Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical did go to Jack Lemon for The Apartment. Best Actress for Comedy or Musical did go to Shirley MacLaine. So once they split those genres, they took mm-hmm. it home. Best Supporting Actor went to Salmoneo for Exodus. Peter Ustinov was nominated here. And Best Supporting Actress went to Janet Leigh for Psycho. And Again, Shirley Knight was nominated, as was Shirley Jones.
1: Big year for Shirley.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Best Director went to Jack Cardiff for Sons and Lovers, beating out uh, Richard Brooks, Stanley Kubrick, Billy Wilder, and Fred Zinneman. So, again, Hitchcock overlooked, but at least here (laughs) Kubrick got the nomination even though, as we said, that's not so much a Kubrick film. Best music for the original score went to Dmitry Tionkin for The Alamo. Best film to promote international understanding was Hand in Hand. Most promising newcomer, male. The three-way tie went to Michael Callan, Mark Damon, and Brett Halsey. And the three runner-ups were Peter Falk, David Jansen, and Robert Vaughn. And I am way more familiar with the runner-ups than the winners that year. Yeah. Especially Peter Falk and Robert Vaughn. And then I think David Jansen, He yeah, he was the fugitive. Yep. A few years later. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, most promising newcomer female was a uh, three way between Ina Balin, Nancy Kwan, and Haley Mills. And the, uh, the runner ups there were Jill Hayworth, Shirley Knight, and Julie Newmar. Julie Newmar. Yeah, and it's Haley Mills and Julie Newmar were the two that I knew from that group. Uh, Henrietta Awards for the. World Film Favorites went to Tony Curtis, Rog Hudson, and Gina Lollobrigida. Special Awards went to Canton Floss for comedy. We discussed him in Around the World at 80 Days. Mm-hmm. And uh, Stanley Kramer for Artistic Integrity. Special Merit Award went to the Sundowners. And the Samuel Goldwyn Awards went to the Trials of Oscar Wilde for the English, foreign lang- or English language foreign film, La Verite for the foreign language foreign film, and The Virgin Spring for the foreign language foreign film. And uh, the Cecil B. DeMille or Cecil B. DeMille Award went to Fred Astaire. So, uh, so a little more support for the apartment here in the acting categories. But again, I think that's mostly because they split the genres. Right. So I don't know if you guys had any thoughts about the way that broke down. So Janet no. Lee won. Did she win, or was she just nominated? Uh, here she won. For the Oscar, okay. she was nominated, but for the Golden Globes, she actually won. Interesting. Uh, although Psycho was completely omitted from the Best Film and Best Director categories.
1: Right, and you know what? I mean, Janelle is great in Psycho, but Anthony Perkins, nothing, huh?
2: One of the iconic <laughs>
1: performances in movie history, really.
2: Yeah, there are three sequels because of Anthony Perkins.
1: Exactly, and he's great. I mean, you watch it, and he like, you know, it's not he's not just some crazy slasher. It's a real character. It's
2: beautifully acted. It does, and he frankly. I've seen all four Psycho movies. Psycho 2 could have happened just because the first was so successful. But the fact that they kept coming comes down to the fact that Perkins kept doing a good job acting.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: And I'll, I'll throw this out there, and I'm not trying to take anything away from Anthony Perkins. Gosh, my mind's just – I'm not going to take anything away from Silence of the Lambs. I'll just put it that way But because I'm blanking on people's names for some odd reason. Anthony Hopkins? Anthony Hopkins, thank you. Um, But Anthony Perkins doesn't show madness in that film until the final 60 or so seconds. And that one look Mm -hmm. in the police station is more chilling than anything in Silence of the Lambs.
2: Also an image frequently put on DVD and Blu-ray packages. It is at the end when we thanks for the spoilers, guys. (laughs) Yeah, uh, but yeah, Psycho was so influential. I I finally saw Friday the Thirteenth a couple years ago, and I realized they just took Psycho in reverse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Instead of thinking it's the son the whole time, well, spoilers, it's the mother. Mm -hmm. It it, it owes so much to Psycho, and then I haven't watched the sequels because I'm usually not a slasher fan. It takes someone like a Hitchcock to put it together to keep me engaged with them
1: there. I mean, I saw them cause they were out when I was in high school and college, but yeah,
2: you're not missing a whole lot. <laughs> no. Yeah. I, my high school graduation was mid nineties. So I'm, I think you guys discussed ages on, out of theaters. I'm between you and Billy. Oh, okay.
0: I'm almost halfway <laughs> actually. So. So, and I'm, I know I'm younger than Blaine. I was born in 75. So. Okay. So you're actually. Two years older.
2: All right. Yeah. To the day. <laughs>
1: <And> <laughs> yeah, <I'm>, exactly. <laughs> and I'm 10 years older than Blaine. So there you go. Perfect. Right. We got it all spaced out.
2: <laughs> all right. So, yeah, I think from there, all we really have left to do is go down to the, the last thing that we really discuss. Well, actually, two things. So we'll go through how the letterbox and IMDb voters have chosen the films then we'll go through who we'd recommend this to so if we go to letterboxd their three best films for 1960 in order are la true the apartment and psycho yeah (laughs) and then you know the the next film that we've discussed here that comes in is the virgin spring at number 11 but we've got you know la dolce vita we've got the bad sleep well by kurosawa in in this year inherit the wind this was a very strong year, not just a few good movies coming from America, but a really strong year for international film. Compare that to the IMDB voters, and they've got true at number one as well, but they put Psycho at number two for the year. And then the next two are uh, Macario, Rocco, and his brothers, and then The Apartment comes in at number five. Really? Yeah. Now, that said, if you go to the IMDb top 250 movies of all time, Psycho is in there at number 37, and The Apartment is number 110. And it's slow to load right now, but both of them also show up well on the letterboxed 500 greatest films of all time. Psycho is here at number 8, and The Apartment is there at number 51. I mean, Psycho's definitely more
1: iconic movie, and um, you know, I think more people know it and more people have seen it. I'm sure, especially these days.
2: Yeah, and hopefully the black and white version. Oh, please, yes. Although, uh, to give, I think it was Lars Van Trier who did the color remake in the '90s, shot for shot. No, it was no. Gus Van Sant. Oh, Gus Van oh, Sant. Scha- Sorry, I, I knew it was the the three name. Exactly. one of the three name guys? <laughs> to give him credit, I saw him interviewed on Entertainment Tonight, and they asked him, "Why are you remaking?" such an iconic film what do you think you can improve on and his answer was nothing today's youth are not watching psycho because it's black and white his hope was giving them a color version would give them something they'd enjoy and then maybe they would go back and find the original so he treated his color version as an inferior ad for the black and white version and try and funnel people that way and he was saying that before it came out so i
1: saw it in the theater with my wife and it's a. Uh, i don't know i mean it's not bad it's just unnecessary but it is kind of interesting especially if you really know psycho to kind of watch it and be like oh yeah he changed this one little thing here and
2: oh that's this yeah i i haven't actually seen the whole thing i've seen enough clips but i'd already seen the original it's well i I know from out of theaters that will and i have very similar ideas on colorizations of black and white films i
1: don't know if you heard the episode when we reviewed it's a wonderful life on out of theaters but my co-host billy I slowly realized that he had accidentally watched a color version of the movie. (laughs) He's mentioned something like, yeah, when he's wearing that Brown coat, I'm like, wait, what?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's if a colorized version looks better than the black and white version, at least one of two things is true. One is that it's a better colorization than I have ever seen. And two the original black and white cinematographer probably didn't understand how to do the cinematography for black and white rather than color.
1: Yeah, no. I've never seen a color one that looks better than a black and white. <laughs>
2: it's just
1: cuz it was lit, colored, costumed, um right. set, light, lit, you know, everything for black and white, so.
2: Yeah, there's a huge difference in key light. But
0: so I I I don't know what your proclivities are will for the show Doctor Who, but when they do the um, restorations of the missing episodes, and they animate them, and they'll do them in color and black and white. I can't watch the color yeah. animation.
1: Just <laughs> no, I
2: don't need. Yeah, just give me the. Yeah,
0: exactly. I'm with you. Yep, as am I.
2: So speaking of which, I've got two of those still to get to, and then I'll have watched every existing or recreated Doctor Who episode ever. Okay, just the last two stories that they did that way. To catch they
0: up they keep they keep adding them to the list. They just announced another one the other day.
2: Yeah, they're gonna keep making them as long as they keep making money at them, and I will keep buying them as long as they keep making them. Cause yeah, that's the way it works. But this is not a Doctor Who podcast, or a Kubrick podcast, or a Hitchcock podcast, or a Sparty podcast. <laughs> fans and podcast, all right. <laughs> I think let's just wrap it up. So, who would we recommend this movie to? I, if you guys want, I can start on this.
0: Okay, sure, go ahead. It
2: it is a rich film, but. I would recommend it. You, you just have to be open to the experience. So you have to come in understanding it as more the, the theatrical comedy than the laugh out loud comedy. And you have to be open to watching a black and white film, which I suspect most of our listeners, at least at this point in the podcast, are. Even though this is, I think, the last black and white winner for a long time. It's still Schindler's List, I think. Yeah, I think the only two black and white films we have left, at least at the time of this recording, are uh, Schindler's List and The Artist. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, The Artist. too yeah. So yeah, it's. I mean, as Will has said, this is like a finely oiled machine. It's a masterwork of filmmaking. It runs the emotional gamut. So as long as you are prepared for that
0: experience, go for it. I think it still works as a romantic comedy. I, I know that the Plot narrative deals with themes that are not acceptable today. They they weren't necessarily um, acceptable in the 60s, but I I feel like the movie makes it clear that CeCe wasn't doing anything with Malice, and all of the managers in Sheldrake are the villains of the piece. So I feel like that goes a long way to making it still work as a romantic comedy today.
1: Yeah, I would recommend it to anyone. I mean, I think that's the thing. It's like when you hear so many movies today are like a romantic comedy and, you know, you can so easily see like these two are going to get together and this and that. And here's a real romantic comedy where they really put some work into the screenplay and really, you know, made it interesting and turned some twists. And uh, yeah, it's not a laugh out loud, funny movie, but, um, And it's also – I would also recommend it to anyone who liked the show Mad Men because clearly Matt Weiner and the creators of Mad Men watched this movie many times because it's, you know, very much set in – that it's definitely in that time period, and it's in that world of New York in, you know, 1960 or 1959 or whenever it takes place. And so, you know, and if you like that vibe, that mid-century modern vibe and sort of that look, I think, you know, I think it's – it's it's right up their alley. And you know, one real quick thing about uh, Baxter and um how he's not, uh, you know, unlike the rest of the people in the movie, he doesn't seem to be as as creepy and uh, problematic, to, for lack of a better word. There is that one scene where he describes how he went through all of Fran's records in the insurance, and he knows like where she lives and when she got an appendix out and all this <laughs> stuff. And that's the one part I'm like, ooh, <laughs> that's a little creepy. But
2: yeah. That's the one thing where he he overstepped
1: it was made what sixty one years ago, so you right. know i th- i'm a I believe you have to take movies you know you have to take them for what they are. You can't apply modern standards to every movie because you're gonna hate everything, and it's all gonna look weird, so you know I'm perfectly willing to step back and look at it
2: yeah and i I have no reason to believe that our current understanding of privacy laws was as prevalent. Back then, yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if if we dig through the, the legal records, there was nothing legally opposed to him, that abuse. It wouldn't surprise me if that no. came out later in response to people doing that. Exactly, yeah. And remember, nothing was on computers back then, or very little, so.
0: <laughs> the film that we've covered recently that this reminded me of, that I'll use as a, if you liked this, also watch this was Marty because, you know, Mm -hmm. Will said it and it's true. This is a romantic comedy where you spend time with the couple and see them fall for each other. It's not a 10-second meet-cute and then hilarity ensues.
1: Right, because there's a point when, you know, Baxter seems to be fairly over Kubelik. You know, he's... You know, he know things have moved on. And he doesn't it's not like he's every day like, I wish I was with her. I wish I was with her. But, you know, he he's finally pushed to the point where he realizes his apartment. I mean, and let's be honest, his bed is going to be used by Sheldrake, you know, and Kubrick. And that's sort of when he he finally hits it. But he, it's not like he's pining for her endlessly. He's sort of let her go at a certain point.
2: Yeah, he he's one of the heroes who's accepted the fact that the girl he's interested in is not going to be with him, and he is consciously trying to move on. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, you know, when the situation changes, he's very happy to welcome her back. But right, uh, yeah, aside from that one moment of reading her records, he is actually a decent model of a human being, or at least one of the better ones in this film. That And the fact that he does come home with a married woman, yeah, he was not the married one. Nothing did happen because, but only because of the, the suicide attempt. If that hadn't happened, things probably would have progressed. But again, that was when he was on the rebound, thinking he would never be with Kubelik. Right. If we can believe everything the married woman said, her husband would have been kind of okay with it, too. Because, I mean, yeah, she was married, but she was married to a guy in a Cuban prison. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. So, But yeah, this is one of the romantic comedies before they became cookie-cutter template outlines where, I mean, the university I went to actually had uh, two film studies courses on genres. One was romantic comedy and one was Westerns. And they picked those genres because there were so many movies where you could just sit down, write one outline, and then watch 15 movies that fit it. Exactly. Like point for point. And that's especially the romantic comedies where the one that always drove me nuts is a lot of the romantic comedies in the 80s and 90s. When you meet the couple, who are ultimately and obviously going to be together, at least one of them was in a relationship with someone who they deliberately made unlikable, so that the audience would be okay when the romantic lead cheats on them later in the movie, setting it up. Exactly. They do
1: something, like, really bad, like, off, you know, off, you know, something, they kick a kid, probably not
2: kick a kid, but you know what I mean, (laughs) but... Right. Yeah, if it's the girlfriend of the male lead, then they just tend to make her dominating and... And overbearing.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you know, Fred McMurray, for all the awful things he does, he's always pleasant. You know, he's not like deliberately. You know, you get the feeling he doesn't see that he's doing anything wrong. Really, he figures he's the good guy in his story. He's
2: not, but. Yeah, he is just pursuing his own happiness with no thoughts to what consequences that'll have on others. So it's not a malicious evil. It's uh, an un. It's a, just a lack of empathy mm-hmm. that causes him to make poor decisions that hurt others. But he's never stopping to think about what impact his decisions are going to have. Right, and he thinks he's doing Baxter a big favor. You know, he's giving Baxter what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And Baxter thought it was what he wanted, so he was going along with it. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's yeah. I think that's where we're at. So um, unless there's any final thoughts, we can wrap things up. So and will you've got a a couple of podcasts that you are involved with as well.
1: Yeah, they're uh they're sort of on hiatus now, but um I do as we mentioned, I do Out of Theaters podcasts with my uh, friend and co-host Billy Copa. The premise sort of is, you know, I've seen 9 million movies in my long life and Billy's seen fewer cuz you know, he's younger than I am. So I'll introduce a movie He'll watch it and then maybe uh we'll see how a classic, you know, maybe the classic isn't such a classic after all, or maybe he does end up liking it. So that's one. And then um I do pictures in pic- with pictures within pictures with my friends Ben Teed and Zach Cruzy, and that's a comic book centered podcast. Again, we're still on hiatus, but both of these are available wherever you find your podcast. So if you if you fell in love with my voice over the past hour or so and you want to hear more of it, <laughs> that's where mm-hmm. you can find it. <laughs> Oh, and one more. I'm doing a, um, I almost forgot, I'm doing a Quentin Tarantino-focused podcast with the guys from Around Comics, Brian Salazar and Chris Niesman. Okay. We're doing Pulp Fiction next. That one is currently going. It comes out once a month.
2: All right. And Pulp Fiction, I'm sure, will be part of a future conversation. It was nominated but did not win in a year where there's a lot of debate about that year. I think... Everyone agrees that the Academy made the wrong choice. There's just debate about what the right choice was.
1: <laughs> you know, my favorite movie, one of my like five favorite movies of all time came out that year, and it was not nominated at all, but it's the
2: Hudsucker Proxy. I love that movie. Oh, and see, my pick for Best Picture that year was also not nominated in the main category, and it even lost the Best Foreign Language film. I'm, I'm a big fan of Chunking Express.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah because there's a movie that has endured it's it's funny it didn't win best foreign language because it's definitely still in the conversation
2: it is and a lot of it i'm looking at what does and doesn't win the best foreign language film compared to how things are shaped up in history i wonder how many of them don't win because they were just hard for the voters to see because of the distribution so you know maybe right yeah people said oh Well, I saw that I saw these two nominees and this was the better of those two. I didn't see those other three.
1: Exactly. I think that happens probably a lot.
2: Yeah. That is one thing I will give the modern voters. Apparently, um, it's they're they're going out of their way to make sure anything that's nominated, the the voters have options to it with. You know, uh, John Centris on Word Balloon, when he was a, a SAG member with his radio job, there was. Screener sites, so he could log in as a SAG member and watch what was nominated, or get DVDs in the mail. So, you know, they were making sure everyone had access, which nice. It's a good thing, and it would not have been nearly as easy in
1: 1960. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, there was no home video. There was, you know, nothing.
2: All right. So, I think that's about it for this month. Next month, we'll we'll be talking about uh, West Side Story which took home the Best Motion Picture Award, beating out Fanny, The Guns of Navarone, The Hustler, and Judgment at Nuremberg. Uh. So, directed by Robert Wise in what I would say is about nine years after his best film. So, yeah, join us next month for that. And again, uh, Will, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, guys. This was a lot of fun. I need any excuse to talk about the apartment, obviously. (laughs) I will jump at it. (laughs)
2: And if anyone is, for some reason, questioning Will's expertise in comics, I highly recommend the run of Catwoman that he wrote a few years back.
1: There were a few movie-centric issues in that run somewhere. One of the trades has them, so yes, thank you very much.
0: (laughs) Oh, uh, I'll I'll just say this. When my wife and I got together, there were a few of the titles I collected that um, she went out of her way to read, and H-E-R-O was one of them.
1: I had so much fun on that book. I keep wishing they'll collect the whole thing, but yeah,
2: that was great though. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, there's sometimes the collection logic escapes me. I have nothing to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm I'm sure because I've I've spoken to to creators going, hey, if you're coming to the Edmonton Expo this year, can I get you to sign the hardcover of this thing you're writing? And the response I got was, there's going to be hardcovers. I got to start coming to staff meetings. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know when it shows up, like if they send me a comp copy, that's essentially when I know it's coming out.
2: (laughs) Okay. Well, all right. Again, thanks. And to our listeners out there, thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get.
0: I want some more.